Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. This is the second episode in a special series about cancer, advancements in research, technology and patient care. The first episode focused on the current state of cancer care with a speaker from Canada, David J. Stewart, professor of medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the University of Ottawa and the Ottawa Hospital. David explained the current state of cancer care in Canada and the US. We also talked about IT in oncology and financial toxicity of cancer diagnosis for patients. In this episode, we'll dive into genomics, the role of AI and data science in oncology with Jose M. Fernandez, genomicist and up until recently the chief data officer at the Institut Curie in France, one of the leading medical, biological and biophysical research centers in the world. We've got quite a few more episodes coming in this area. In the next episode, you'll be able to hear Tuvik Baker, CEO of Pangea Biomed, about AI approaches for matching patients with existing treatments, because at the moment, around 30% of drugs in oncology are prescribed off-label, which means that they are officially indicated for a different diagnosis than the patient receiving the medication has. In most failed oncology clinical trials, the problem is not that the drug does not perform the activity that, that it was designed to perform. Usually it does perform the therapeutic activity, and yet many of the patients or some of the patients do not respond as you would hope they would, or they sometimes initially respond well, but there is resistance. The tumor develops resistance to the therapy and continues growing. And the metaphor I would like to use for that is you have a group of players, okay? And you hit, let's say, the captain, but there is the support group around that player and it may still win the game. And in our in our analogy, these are the genes within the tumor. So in biology, you have a very high degree of redundancy. So when you hit a target, even if it's a very important gene for the cell, usually there would be redundancy mechanisms that would try to come in and cover up for the lost function, for the gene that was lost due to the therapy. And what we are trying to understand with our analysis is how strong is that support group. If we see that the support group is very weak, we would say, okay, here is a really good opportunity for therapeutic intervention. This gene does not have the strong support group. And therefore, if we hit it, we would really be able to selectively kill the cancer cells while sparing the healthy tissue. Whereas if this gene has a very strong support group, our, our chances of succeeding with that treatment are low. After that, You'll also be able to listen to an episode about the quality of life cancer survivors face after they officially finish their treatment and are pronounced as cured. Unfortunately, they're often discriminated against when competing on the job market or looking for loans, 
as explained by Dr. François Mounier, member of the Belgian Royal Academy of Medicine, a scientific member of the European Cancer Patient Coalition, who has been fighting for the right to be forgotten for over 10 years. Medical doctor, medical oncologist, we tell you are cured, live your life. We no longer need to do all those tests and to do a follow-up every six months, perhaps once a year or even not at all. And facing that, the patient came back to us and particularly to me, and I have two vivid examples in my close contact, saying, yes, live your life, but we cannot buy an apartment or a home. But first, in today's episode, a deep dive in genomics, challenges with analyzing large volumes of data, requirements for data specialists, for genomics data, and potential of federated learning in the field. Before we dive into today's discussion, do check out our newsletter. It only comes out once a month. The September issue is focused on the insights about healthcare digitalization in Africa and the two editions before that on digital health in Taiwan and the APAC region. If you haven't yet, subscribe to the show to receive new episodes in your podcast player automatically. As mentioned, In the upcoming episodes, we'll talk a lot about the innovation in oncology. Shusei, thank you for joining this discussion. We're going to talk about cancer, genomics, and data. I want us to start with a little bit of light introduction to the topic. Why is genomics so important in oncology, and how is it used to guide treatment decisions? Hi, Tiasha. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and to to have this chat with you about some of the topics which really interest me. And when you talk about cancer, cancer? It's a, say that it's a disease of information. And today, fortunately, it's a disease that uh, patients live a long time with that disease. It's not a synonym of, of, of a final disease. People live many years and in some indications becoming a chronic disease. And that means that uh, as patients come back to the hospital, new tests are done. We are increasing the amount of data. So cancer is a very data thirsty disease and is producing lots of data. And all that data is today enabling us to be able to better understand that disease. And one of the data streams that we are capturing these days, it's genomic information, genetic mutations, because often those, when I say that is a disease of information, there is something that stops working well. Some cells stop being selfish and not recognizing that are part of, of a whole. And therefore they start growing and they start ignoring the kind of instructions of the body. So how can, when, how can we identify that particular moment when a group of cells embarks into that uh, selfish journey? And that's what we are trying to do when we talk about identifying new biomarkers to better stratify patients. Biomarkers would be molecular signatures that today we can identify but sequ- by sequencing the biopsies or even liquid biopsies, as, as it looks like uh, the future is, is coming. But we need to better understand the disease at molecular level so that we can better treat those patients and avoid using treatments which 
wouldn't work for a particular molecular uh, subset. And that, that's the history. Normally, patients are treated by statistical models. So you find where, what works in most of the patients, and that's what you use as a standard treatment. When that stops working or that doesn't work, you go to a second line or a third line. That was the past in cancer. Today, thanks to this genomic sequencing, these molecular panels, we can better identify at molecular level the changes in a particular tumor, and then we can use part of the arsenal that we have. Some of the drugs will be targeting some of that mutation. So that's why genomics today are very important in the precision oncology uh, landscape and will become even more important when we can use uh, that kind of analysis to diagnose cancer on early stages, because the earlier we can identify the disease, the wider number of uh, more options are available in terms of treatment. If a patient arrives to the hospital already uh, metastasis, the number of options are very limited. And how does the process of determining or finding out what the genome is like of the patient, how does that look like? Because on the one hand, there's the whole genome sequencing that you can do on an individual, and then there's the genetics of the tumor that is different. Can we clarify this part? There's sometimes this uh, perception in the general public then that when we talk about genetics, you just have genes and those genes determine how you're going to react to medications, how the disease are going to develop. But that's actually not the case. Genes need to be activated and have to be expressed in a certain way for something else to happen. So they're not necessarily deterministic. So can you talk a little bit about that, the complexity of the genetics of the tumors and how far has science come in, in terms of how that helps with the diagnosis and treatment? You are bringing the topic of uh, somatic and germline mutations. But before answering that particular question, I want to go a little bit back and say, how can we talk about whole genome sequencing today? Over 20 years ago, uh, the first draft of the human genome was sequenced, and that gave us a reference, what a standard human genomic uh, makeup would look like. Three billion uh, nucleotides, which were sequenced uh, after a very large international uh, project, took several years, and that provided this reference to which today all the different next-generation sequencing approaches compared to that's the reference. It's a reference made a consensus of several individuals. It's not just the genome of one individual person. And today, thanks to that reference, we can do sequencing because we can compare against something. When you are comparing, you will find differences. And those differences what we often find called single nucleotide uh, variations. And those single nucleotide variations often can happen in places where they are meaningless and therefore they are just typos which without a biological impact. In other cases, there might be these typos happen in one of the regulatory sequences that we trigger or will stop or will switch off a particular gene. And in those cases, we are already having a biological effect. And in other cases, they will be in the coding sequence of that particular, of a particular gene. And that variation will change the shape, the 3D structure of that protein, because at the end of the day, genes are coded into proteins. And once the protein is different, the function will be altered. So we need to identify where the mutations are happening, and we, th we can do that by comparing the particular sequence, and it could be you can sequence the whole genome, the 3 billion nucleotides. You can just sequence a subset of our genome, which is coding, which is what's called the exome, or you can go down 
and just sequence a number of genes, which we know might have a particular impact on a disease. And depending on the complexity, obviously, uh, sequencing and analyzing a whole genome, it's much more complex than doing an exome, and it's much more different. Sequencing and analyzing an exome, it's more complex than sequencing just a number of genes. So often in the clinic, a number of genes, one, two, three, for example, in CTQA, we have panels with around 400 genes, which are very often involved in cancer. So we get a snapshot of the genes, which often are related to cancer, and we can track whether there are any changes. When you compare your sequencing, as you will say it, you are sequencing a tumor, you're taking a biopsy and you're sequencing, you will compare that to the individual. So you have also a blood sample that you can compare. The reference in that case will be the blood, the genome of the individual blood sample, unless you are talking about a leukemia and then you will use a different tissue. But if you sequence blood and then you compare that with the biopsy, you will see which changes are present in the tumor, which are not present in the germline. And therefore you can flag some of the mutations because as I said, the reference is a status, is a consensus, but every individual has changes in their genome when compared to the reference, which not always mean that we have diseases. In some cases, there are diseases and there are congenital uh, diseases and there are rare diseases. But in this particular case, you want to have a comparison between your genome and the genome of the biopsy. You mentioned that this is a very data-rich field. How is all this data managed? What kind of technical requirements need to be considered in IT to help accelerate discovery and contribute to future-proof data ecosystems and good care for patients? The reality today is that in most hospitals, they don't do whole genome sequencing as routine. There are some countries where they have a national genomic initiative, Genomics England in the UK, uh, France Messa Genomic uh, in France, and there are a number of countries where they are doing a research projects to sequence cancers and rare diseases because often, well, if I'm, I'm working on cancer, but when you're working with rare diseases, the approach is similar. Instead of comparing a biopsy with the general line, with a blood sample, you will just compare a trio. You will have father, mother, and child. And then you will look at the difference between the genome of the father and the mother and see whether there are new mutations in the child which might explain the rare disease. So the approach is the same. You always compare to see whether there are mutations and those mutations happen in a particular gene and what we understand of that gene might explain the disease. But when it comes to routine, obviously IT systems in hospitals are not ready in most cases, to handle this stream of information. It's a huge amount of information, and it's not just storing the genomes, it is being able to analyze them and being able to reanalyze them because one of the aspects which often happens when you are looking into a genome, there will be variants in a particular gene for which we have no information. And those are labeled VUS, varying or known, or known significance. And that can change in a matter of weeks because somebody works on that particular mutation and identify a link between a particular mutation and a disease. So those VUS to have to be reanalyzed on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, or every year so that you can update that information. So being able to manage not just about, uh, not just the storage space that you need when you are getting hundreds of thousands. The goal of uh, France Mans Genomique is 25,000 genomes per year and the number of cancer cases increase. So handling that information, being able to analyze, because today, one of the challenges is also analyzing that information in a timely way, because if it takes you six months, it's too late to inform the treatment of a particular cancer patient. In the case of rare diseases, which is where it's increasing the success, for example, in the UK, France, UK, 
Genomics England, I think that they find about 20% of the cases that they analyze, they can provide. So diagnosis is still is not in every case because there are lots of changes that we don't know much about yet, but that's a, a big improvement. But most importantly, it is reducing the diagnostic uh, odyssey journey. It takes about seven years for a family to really get a diagnosis of what's happening with a child. When you use exome or genome sequencing, you can reduce the time to a matter of months. In the case of cancer, you need to have a very good understanding of the mutations present on that particular biopsy so you can treat the patient. You can wait a month or two months. You have to get the result within weeks. So there are ways of finding shortcuts. And one of the ways of handling this is instead of sequencing the whole genome, just sequencing a subset, so a collection of genes that you know are often involved in that particular disease. If you are just talking about lung cancer, you will have EGFR. If you're talking about breast cancer, you need to know what HER status, the PR status. Depends on the disease you can target. But another way of doing it is by standard approach, always sequencing the whole genome and then just analyzing a digital panel. So you basically reduce the space to analyze so that you can give results uh, in a timely manner. So you still have the information for future analysis and follow-up, but to give the therapeutic uh, response in time, you just analyze the number of genes which are involved in that particular cancer. So you mentioned there's quite a few limitations for hospitals when they try to manage the data and provide care for oncology patients. Given that you worked on data and innovation strategy at the Institute Curie, which is one of the leading medical, biological and biophysical research centers in the world, how did you approach the whole data management situation there? Institute Curie is a very special place and it has been a privilege to be leading this data strategy for the last five years. And it's special, it's a unique space because we have a hospital group dedicated to cancer, but we also have a research center dedicated to fundamental research. And my team, the data team, we are connecting both worlds, developing infrastructures and linking both worlds. And the privilege has been to have foundation funding that ambitious project. The challenge that most of other hospitals have, when I talk to other colleagues in Paris, public hospitals, there is no public funds to that to do that. In the last five years, I've created data team with over 20 people with different profiles, data scientists and bioinformaticians, data architects, data managers, to be able to harness this stream of information. But it's not just the genomic information. It is MRI scans, it's mammographies, it's a text, electronic health records, extracting that information so you can produce a longitudinal view of that patient so that you can follow up the different treatments and whether the biopsy was taken, at which point some MRI scans happen so that you know exactly throughout the progression of the disease or the evolution of that disease, you have the information in the right spot so that you can compare it with similar information from patients in a similar status because that's critical. Context is essential in, when you're talking about biomedical data. So having the privilege of being supported by Fondation Curie, we could put in place this, this ambitious team, our platforms, and our tools. Often, and that's the big challenge, is that on data projects, a unique center is not enough. Even when Curie is the largest uh, hospital in terms of breast cancer patients treated in Europe, even if we wanted to work on breast cancer, we don't have enough information for some of these AI projects. We need to work with other centers across France, across Europe. And that 
the main challenge there is interoperability. How can we make sure that we are comparing similar data? That's why when I was talking about these timelines, it's critical to know at which moment on the progression of the disease, a particular MRI scan has been done. Because if you want to compare, you want to develop a particular algorithm analyzing radiomics, you need to be feeding the algorithm with images taken at the same moment on the disease evolution. So that's one of the challenges. And the other challenge is not only being able to share data and compare results across different centers, it is how can that be translated into a reality? And the main challenge there is that we are in a situation similar to clinical trials. Real-world data, which is the data produced outside clinical trials, are giving us the right clues on how the disease is progressing. But we need to have ways of aggregating that data, analyzing it, and feeding back into the system. And that's one of the challenges. How can you feed back that and be sure that information arrives at the right moment to the right person? So how did you approach or how do oncology centers or research institutions approach the problem with data harmonization? In terms of being able to aggregate this data from different centers, what we have to do is work with other centers. And for that, we created a public-private partnership, which groups over 30 hospitals across Europe. The, part, the group is called DigiCore. DigiCore is a digital institute for cancer outcomes research. And the first stage is harmonizing data, agree what are the critical items that we need to keep so that we can feed and we can homo provide homogeneous data to different clinical trials. So that's the first step, working in group across Europe. But the, one of the challenges that we face is that those hospitals without Fondation Curie uh, behind them, funding them, often most of the funding streams which are available are assuming that clinical data as it was produced uh, in clinical care, suitable for research, and that's not the case. The reason that the reason the data my team includes uh, data scientists, data architects, data managers, is because you have to transform that that data produced in the context of looking after a patient, a clinician. Uh, in consultation, they have fifteen minutes for a patient, fifteen twenty minutes. The priority at that moment is to treat that patient. In some cases, that there are some cases that they don't even want to have a computer in the room because they want to have eye contact and have that talk with their patients. That information is captured, but it's addressing what happened to that particular patient in that particular moment. If you analyze that data six months out of the line, one year uh, afterwards, you need to take into account the context because perhaps some of the analysis which were done at that time point, six months down the line, you think, what's the point of doing that if we know that the patient had this particular subtype? But six months upstream, that information wasn't known. You need to do an update. test. So when you are analyzing all these big AI projects that just get uh, information from patients, the whole history, you are at the end of a vector, a tiny vector. But you have to take into account that some of the data points upstream in the vector were critical to inform which will be the most suitable treatment for that patient at that moment. So we have to take into account that transformation, that transformation requires creation and manpower. Because if you don't have data with quality, your algorithms are going to be noisy, they're going to be overfitting, and they're not going to be suitable for that kind of analysis. And that transformation often is not funded. Either uh, public funds are serving our hospital, they have the data so they can do the AI, so we get uh, the data scientists and they do the AI, but they forget that all that curation is extremely expensive because it's time consuming. 
you cannot do it automatically. We can improve the ways that curation is happening in this semi-automated mode, but you need to feed those systems. And often that's not happening. So that's one of the main challenges, this gap between data produced in the hospital and data necessary to fuel the algorithms which will develop AI. So once that gap is filled, you can have a flow of the critical data with all the conditions, you know, of uh, consent, uh, privacy, preservation, so that you can share that data in a safe way, but you need to curate it. You need to be sure that the information you are feeding to your algorithm is data of quality. If not, you are feeding an algorithm with noise, and as the old adage says, uh, rubbish in, rubbish out. Knowing the constraints and the difficulty of data management, as you just described it, how do you see the debates around and hopes around federated learning, where the idea is that different institutions don't share the data or reveal the identities of patients? But you could make queries into different data sets and just get results out of it. And then hopefully we would just uh, advance science faster. Exactly. One of the aspects that I alluded to before is privacy preservation. And that's something which is critical. We are treating our patients. We want to improve the way we treat our patients today, our patients in the future. And that can be done thanks to these new algorithms, which we need to be creating. But to do that, we still need to preserve privacy of today's patients and have their consent. If you want to centralize data into a unique central data warehouse, it's, if you're talking about all data produced in all hospitals, you are talking about huge volumes of data, which will be moving for no obvious reason. So there is a environmental issue there because you are moving data, copying because the hospitals will still keep a copy of the data. So you will be copying data into a central data warehouse for no obvious reasons with the obvious carbon footprint associated to those processes. And then you will have a central port of data, which will be a target for hackers all over the world because you will have a very rich data collection, which will be very attractive in terms of selling in the dark web. So you are creating two issues, an environmental issue and then a privacy risk issue. If you work with data within the data producers, you keep the data in the hospitals or the specific data warehouses associated to those clinical centers, you are avoiding the central challenge, having a central pot, which will be a big target for hackers. Of course, you will have lots of possible targets, but it's less attractive to just hack a particular hospital, although Sadly, we see that hospitals are being hacked mostly for, for money, ransomware approaches on a weekly basis. But you reduce that risk of having a central data warehouse, which all the information, let's say, of all European patients or all French patients. So you reduce that side and having the copies, you basically, you are not going to be copying and pushing forward data. So again, there will be a, an environmental impact there. But how, do we, how does it work? We have a number of projects in this space. We've been working, for example, with Substra Foundation. We created a federated learning project where we were using digital pathology slides. The biopsies often come in a, in a glass slide. The, the pathologists look at the microscope. You scan that in high resolution, and you can feed that, those images to algorithms and can produce uh, a very thorough analysis. So in this project, we were using a federated layer approach so that the algorithm was visiting the different centers. In this particular case, for the pilot, it was between the QRE in Paris 
and central Lyon-Berard and Lyon. So the model was going to be learn to analyze the images of Curie, sell to Lyon, reanalyze the images of Lyon, came back to Curie, re relearn. We did a number of iterations to improve the model so that it was compatible with both centers because, again, different hospitals will use different ways of labeling slides. They might use different antibodies to mark them. Colors might be different. And when you want to produce an algorithm, you want it to be suitable for any hospital and not just hospitals using a particular brand of antibodies. So we have that approach. And that's a, it's, it's a project that worked. There is a, a publication or a pre-publication uh, available in MedArchive. We worked with Hawking, a, a company in, 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 in France. So that kind of approach enables hospitals to, to keep control of the images, produce models which are based, will be aggregated models that will be able to inform other centers based on the same kind of information. So the federated learning approach, this is an example working with digital pathology. We have cases as well working with MRI scans. That's an approach which has worked very well for us and enables the data producers to keep control of the data. And what are the results of that collaboration? Was it just scientific findings or did you actually translate anything to clinical practice? I mean, in this particular case, and uh, this project with Substra was a, a proof of concept, so proving that can work. But using the same approach, there have been new ways of looking into images. When you are analyzing digital pathology with artificial intelligence algorithms, you can find new ways of stratifying patients. You can find the flagging, for example, the AI can show you some kind of early inflammation that can be informative if you want to treat those patients with immunotherapy. There are a specific applied projects, but before you go into the applied projects, you have to prove that the approach works. And then this is the kind of uh, approach that once you have an algorithm that works uh, to analyze breast cancer, digital pathology slides, all the centers which perhaps don't have access to experienced pathologists uh, or perhaps don't have the expertise in-house, they could envisage to use those approaches to analyze the data. And they will be, this will be a way of democratizing access to top experts. If we go a step back and maybe reflect a little bit on the progress that has been made in the last 20 years since the first sequencing of the genome, how do you describe it? The first thing that I think that the Human Genome Project was a revolution was this global approach, this international consortium with scientists in the US, in the UK, in France, in Japan, distributed all, all over the world. And that way of working was a novelty having such a big, ambitious project and coordinates at a global level. Unfortunately, that hasn't died with the Human Genome Project when it was published, the original draft in 2001 and subsequent updates uh, to the human genome. That is today a reality with other ambitious projects like the Human Cell Atlas. Again, an ambitious project with scientists all over the world. And even today that we have that reference and most uh, genomes have been sequenced uh, across Europe and in the US. Now there are also initiatives to show, to increase the representativity of Africa, Asia in those sequencing efforts. So that original endeavor is still lives today with this kind of ambitious global way of working. And that was a big change. Another aspect that again in 2001, talking about a new era where, you know, at the end of disease or the end of cancer, of course, cancer, unfortunately, is still a disease today. But we are, in these 20 years, we are farther down the line. We have a better understanding of the molecular level of how some cancers happen. And there are new ways of treating those, uh, those, uh, those tumors. So 
we are learning and mentioned before that liquid biopsies are ways of trying to analyze and identify some of these uh, growing tumors before they are a reality. So can that be detected by just uh, doing a blood tests and identifying some part? When you have a tumor, tumors are shedding cells and those cells will be circulating and that's what you detect. If you have a very sensitive analysis, but the complication is that whether you will have false positives and so you have to tune clearly your liquid biopsies so that you don't increase the number of eggs, new mammographies in a moment where healthcare systems are already clogged. There are not enough clinicians. If you suddenly start getting lots of patients without a cancer, but which are false positives from some of these uh, routine tests, it's very easy to take a blood test and to run one of these analyses. If you're getting lots of patients coming for no reason, you will even exacerbate those issues in the clinical space. So you have to find the right balance between early detection so that you can treat those patients and give new options to patients that perhaps one, two years down the line wouldn't have those options. But at the same time, you have to take into account that you don't want to saturate already hospitals which are under pressure of coming out of the pandemic. There's a lot of progress happening in the field of liquid biopsies. There are already um, companies that claim that they found ways to detect cancer early. And if that detection is correct, that can be of significant help because unfortunately, oftentimes patients get diagnosed when cancer is already in the late stage. So coming from an institution such as Institute Curie, can you maybe just explain spend that thought on the challenge between trying to introduce a new technology and a new approach like that and being sure that this is going to be beneficial because as you mentioned yourself, too many procedures don't just increase the workload and the costs for healthcare. They can also negatively impact the trust that people have in the diagnostics and science if there's too many uh, false alarms in the end. Exactly. I know that they've been, we are just out of ESMO, big uh, European uh, conference on, on oncology. There were lots of findings published just before ESMO, a big paper published in Nature. I think that we have to be cautious. Liquid biopsy probably will be the future, but we are far from having them in a routine because we risk, as I said, if you have patients flagged by the system as at risk of having a tumor because the system is still being tuned. In the UK, there is right now a clinical trial going on to tune those systems. The promise is, okay, if we were capable of detecting early cancers, we will reduce the burden of the hospitals. But in that transition, first, we have to be right when those parameters, how those parameters are defined. And as I said, this is still a clinical trial in the UK ongoing. So we are far from that being the routine. And that transition between early findings, yes, we can identify some signatures from, yes, from prostate cancer. And then we have to assess. That's where the kind of health economics space comes in and says, those patients, what will be the impact on those early cancers in the outcomes of those patients? Are we talking about prostate cancer? Well, perhaps it was got to be a very slow growing tumor. An intervention might exacerbate or might have a dramatic impact on those patients. Are we talking about early detection of breast cancer, which otherwise would be, were going to be very aggressive and those patients were going to have a very poor outcome? There are lots of ifs, so lots of things to understand. So it is clear that better understanding at molecular level of the different 
cancers enable us to better stratify patients. And therefore, if you have better stratified patients, you might have better therapies available for them. But I think the liquid biopsy, we have to be cautious. We have to see the data and not listen to the marketing of the different teams or different companies. We have to be cautious. It's going to be a big change, but there's going to be a transition. And that transition has to be done in the right way. Without patients which receive a test saying, it seems that you have a cancer, we'll panic, we'll be very worried. And maybe three months out the line, after several tests, to say, oh, sorry, it was a glitch on our algorithm. We have to avoid that. So I think that at this stage, we are on clinical trials. Let's leave that information percolate and how that information is going to be. I believe that could be the future, but the future is not tomorrow. Yeah, but at least it's bright. It's bright. So... What fascinates you most in terms of the findings that we've managed to come to in genomics? Because oncology is a very uh, complex field and I think it's still really difficult to just imagine how anything can be figured out because there's just so many factors that impact cancer. So we've got genes, then there's several factors that impact if genes will be expressed. We've got genes that impact other genes. So that's all taken into account when thinking about new therapies. Just a, a very small subset of diseases, such as rare diseases, have just one gene that you can eliminate with, let's say, CRISPR, and you're going to solve the problem. But in most cases, there's just more factors that impact the final results on health. So what's your perspective on the complexity of the correlations and factors that impact oncology and cancer? You are spot on, Tiasha. The more we know, the more complicated we realize the picture is. And that's what I was trying to say when 20 years ago, big herald, a new era into human civilization. I cannot remember some of the wording of some of these big announcements where the first drafts of the human genome were published, uh, the language of God, all these kind of things were announced. We have an understanding on the language of life. You also mentioned right now, CRISPR, we can change that in a very accurate way. And that's for me, is one of the big revolutions and uh, CRISPR gene editing. And that will have an impact not only in cancer, not only in rare diseases, in things like uh, transplantation. Xenotransplantation will become a reality. And those patients waiting for a kidney or for a liver, those waiting lists can be eradicated because there will be access to xeno organs, organs provided from pigs or engineered organs. And that, for me, that gene editing is one of the big, you know, not only being able, being capable of reading genomes, which is what we do with genomics uh, when we are sequencing genomes, but being able also to write genomes. And that dialogue is going to be critical in the future of disease. There are other risks. Not, I, I'm not just limited. I've been working in cancer for a long time, but I like sometimes to look outside the cancer space to see how things happen. And some of the learnings from cancer can be applied in other indications. And for example, I can think of the Lifetime Initiative, which was an ambitious project that we put forward uh, in Europe to put out there the concept of interception. We were talking about liquid biopsies, how you can early detect uh, disease before it is too late. The concept of interception is associated to Single cell sequencing, again, when you are sequencing, when you talk normally to talk about sequencing a genome, what you do is you get a biopsy or you get tissue, you mash it, and you sequence a mix 
that is present on that particular mesh tissue. Single cell sequencing enables you to sequence an individual cell. And that's very important when it comes to cancer because we can start sequencing those cells which are in the interface between the tumor and the host and the patient. And if you can identify which genes are activated in those patients, that's the immune response. And you can identify which cellular which cell types are present in that interface tumor and you get a better understanding of how our immune system is, tries to, to fight the tumor. So single cell sequencing, you get single cell sequencing, you associate that with the power of uh, artificial intelligence, statistical models. At the end of the day, machine learning are complex uh, statistical models. And if you understand the normal journey of a particular cell, you can detect when those cells get out, get away of their normal way, and that is the interception. You can predict disease just before it happens. And that in cancer could be associated with liquid biopsies, but in other diseases today, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's are detected too late. Uh, it's comparable to uh, detecting a cancer at metastatic level. But if you can detect that disease 15 years before, in that moment where the disruption starts, maybe there are ways of treating it. We mentioned earlier how difficult it is for the medical centers to do any research, and that's also related to, to funding. So I want to go from that maybe to a little bit to just ask you about how you see the development of the digital infrastructure in France and just the general digitalization of the French healthcare systems. There's a lot of talk that France now wants to adopt the model that Germany had in terms of digital therapeutics. But apart from that, in 2021, France announced a 650 million uh, euros large investment in digital health for different purposes, 35 million for large-scale deployment of digital health in France, and then 170 million for experimental programs, 200 million for things like teleconsultations, surgical robotics, medical devices based on AI. So the desire is there. And just as someone who knows how complex the whole data situation is and how important it is, on the other hand, for advancements in, in technology, how, do you, how would you position France? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question. And it also brings me five years ago, moved to France to set up this team. And now I'm about to leave France and move on in my career. So it could be some kind of a balance of what happened in the last five years. You mentioned lots of money coming, lots of recovery funds are coming into this space, digital infrastructures. The main challenge, we risk. There are several risks and several opportunities, right? One of the things that I sometimes mention to some of my French colleagues, I say, putting money into lots of things, you risk having a a Minitel case, and Minitel was a device which was developed in France before the internet was widely used. It was something which was attached to the phone lines and enabled you to do text that there were with, with mini websites, but that meant that was widely used in France, but that delayed the adoption of internet because people say, I have Minitel, I don't need internet. And that delayed the adoption of the internet in France for some years. And I think that we are at the same risk. If, if we try to do things in our corner without working with other colleagues across Europe. And that's why, for example, I alluded before to DigiCore. That's 
how you have to work. You have to work at European level. If you try to work on your corner, developing your solution, you're going to be reinventing the wheel. And maybe before you reinvent the wheel, you make some mistakes that somebody else has made before and you don't learn from other experience. So it's important to work in network at European level. You mentioned teleconsultation. I remember just before, before COVID, we had a conversation. I was with the director general of the hospital group and uh, we were using teleconsultation. We were developing some apps to, to do teleconsultation, but the, the health authorities say, no, the consultation is not a medical act, so we cannot reimburse you. You can use it, but it's not a medical act, and therefore there is no reimbursement associated to that. Three months down the, down the line, 80% of our consultations were done but teleconsultation because COVID arrived. So sometimes you need some of these notches to move on. These recovery funds, if well coordinated, could push forward collaboration and new ideas. I mentioned before companies, uh, there is no shortage of companies in the startup space around Curie in that block, in that square mile, it will be less than a square mile. It will be in, in two blocks around Curie. There are seven field medalists. Mathematics are very strong. So that's not, a, there's no shortage of ideas. The infrastructure is there, but there is, there are, I think France, I feel it is the jurisdiction most uh, complicated to work in GDPR. The national regulator, they have a very limiting uh, approaches. And now, just a couple of weeks ago, a new report uh, to the prime minister was produced. Uh, said what should be the future of AI? And among the recommendations is uh, putting this uh, national regulator looking after AI. So that could be the end of it as we know it. You know, there are lots of very bright companies right now doing very interesting, very innovative solutions. But if we're going to be limiting data sharing in some ways that sometimes don't make any sense, that would be very complicated. The future could be bright, but it could be very somber if, if we look to limit uh, what it can be done with no obvious reason, but the desire is clearly there. Yeah, it's when, if I talk to innovators from France or those trying to enter the France, French market, they say that if you get approved or if you're capable of working in France, you can make it in any market exactly because of the amount of bureaucracy that is present here. And as for the European perspective, I think as patients, uh, or as just individuals, we can be quite calm in terms of data privacy and data protection. Unfortunately, that sometimes does go to the account that the scientific progress or just the introduction of technology is much more difficult and can impact which innovations are going to decide to enter the European or French market in the first place. I don't know if you have an additional comment on that. No, simply, simply, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am for protecting privacy. We are all at the end of the day consumers. So we need to be pro protected. So GDPR is there to protect us. But at the same time, GDPR comes with some flexibility and in, in for the research space and even saying that when you're talking about multi-jurisdictional, whoever produces or puts more data, the whole consortium will have to follow. That's not accepted by some jurisdictions and that complicates uh, working with other groups. Keeping privacy and having consent and securing the data and with all the conditions, you are the one that says, yeah, but it has to be uh, in my space because uh, I cannot share it with you. At some point, you might end up being excluded and, uh, and other centers will work together. So there is, uh, I am for protection without question, but when it is reasonable, mm -hmm. that is to protect our rights as users. But sometimes it's just some of the requests are 
out of out of scale. As the last question, what are some of the hopes and expectations you might have in terms of the future development of genomics? interoperability and data exchange, data liquidity for faster progress? Uh, that's a very open question, a very uh, complicated. Genomics, it's a reality. It will be more widely adopted in other indications, not just in cancer. And that that's changing medicine. That's making medicine a more quantifiable discipline, uh, less humanistic and more scientific. And that will open new ways of assessing outcomes and not only this precision medicine paradigm, as I've mentioned, can be applied uh, to neurodegenerative diseases. This quantifiability will change the practice of medicine. And I hopefully having more data, medicine should be more human, more patient-centered. And by patient-centered, I really mean patient-centered and not like everybody says, we are patient-centered. The waiting room is there. The patient goes into the clinician and it's not the patient in a place and everything happened around the patient. So when I say patient-centric, it could really be patient-centric and so they will be the consultation facilitates, people can stay at home, but if they need some particular treatment, and that should also fluidify the health system. So technology should help us to go farther, faster, and in better shape. But we have to be careful and not to always buy the marketing and get the reality. So I see that real world data, it can change how medicine evolves. Maybe not everything about clinical trials. There will be data directly from following the patients that can inform possible new ways of treating patients. So all these, we need to harness these multiple streams of data because we are talking about multimodal data streams and that's complicated. Because somebody who understands our genomics perhaps is not good on imaging or text treatment or medicine. So you have to work with teams which are multidisciplinary. And that's a reality today. A data team, you need to have clinicians who will be asking the relevant questions. You will have people developing the, the architecture so that you can put, uh, you can handle those data sources. You will need people working on deep learning because you have lots of images, but there will be also some NLP because you need to make sense of the text. All these teams have to be working together and exchanging information so that you can move on farther and faster. Maybe just one more thing. You mentioned earlier how important it is to have real-world data in oncology, how uh, a certain disease progressed. What kind of innovation have you seen used in practice to gather that real-world data? Because we talk more and more about decentralized clinical trials, about gathering data through wearables, through sensors in the patient's home, and also making it easier for patients to report their outcomes so they don't don't just talk about that when they enter the clinic on their regular medical checkup, which happens every few months. Today, when it comes to randomized clinical trials, one of the main challenges, and that's one of the main challenges that all clinical trials often highlight as the main issue is recruitment of the patients. And recruitment means when a clinical trial is open, there are a number of inclusion and exclusion criteria because the idea is to prove that particular new molecule. And in the last 20 years, over 200 new molecules were approved in the cancer space. But when you go through the list, there is, in some cases, patients under 65 or patients not treated by X, Y, Z, 
or patients with no kidney problems, the list of exclusion criteria can be very long. So when it comes to translate that into recruiting patients, you end up perhaps in some cases with a selected population, which is not representative of real patients. If I look into the average age of the patients of QD, it's 66 years old. If you exclude, and that's QD with that big pediatric speciality. So if you remove the, pedi the pediatrics, probably the average age, fortunately, it's closer to 70. If you have, if you select your patients to get your drug approved, but then you put it in the market and it doesn't work because patients are not the same profiles that you selected to prove that it works, you wasted time. In some cases, you don't have enough patients. For example, I can think of a molecule which was approved uh, for use of breast cancer in men. It's a rare, but there are cases. But to recruit enough men with a breast cancer to prove that molecule worked, it will take 20 years. So based just on real-world evidence, the FDA approved that the extension of the label of that particular treatment for men with breast cancer. So there are lots of different cases where you could say, this is how real-world evidence can help us. But for the main thing is how often clinical trials are not representing general population and then the molecules come into the market and they don't work the way they should work or the way they work on the clinical trial. And then you have to go back and either will be revisiting inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, follow up for longer. That's where I think that the real world evidence can help in some particular cases go faster and go farther. In other cases, get it there. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really, really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.